so our nation celebrates a birthday tomorrow, 240 years. Once it was, has it changed in your lifetime? Once it was very clear, and not even up to the bank of the United States of America, the Christian nation, that today there is a debate. Some say the new religion in America seems to be relativism. Relativism is the popular belief that if you think it's true, then it's the truth. So that doesn't matter what God says, it's just what you think. That's what matters. And we can rationalize with relativism anything. I saw a web story last week, and it said that it is likely that if this world continues, in about 100 years, that the super rich will have a new sport. Hunting humans. <laughs> Forecasters are predicting that in 100 years, if you've got enough money, you can sign up for a safari to go shoot a human. <clears throat> Are you surprised? Hollywood's made movies about this. Hunger Games, wasn't that about hunting humans? Or Running Man was about hunting humans? In fact, 50 years ago, Gilligan's Island did an episode about a hunter who came to the island to hunt Gilligan. The relativist would say, well, why not? The hunter's paying his fees and his taxes, and, and he's donating money to a good cause. And the target's getting money to take care of his family, life insurance, if you will, they might say. And he's going to die anyway, so why not do this and make some extra cash for his kids? That's how it works. Relativism, it, it's practiced every day. And it's very dangerous. And a quote about relativism I liked, I read, don't believe everything you think. Isn't that good? Don't believe everything you think. Be careful how you form your opinion. If you leave God out of the equation, you're going to be wrong. For example, bring God into the hunting humans debate. You'll have truth on your side, and the relativists don't like the truth. Therefore, they detest God. And so that's reared its head in America. And our country is at a crossroads. It's, I don't know if you've heard this, but as a pastor, I'm into some information that maybe you're not aware of. Uh, there's a presidential election going on in our country. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm shocking you with this or not, but there is an election going on. Donald Trump on one side and Hillary Clinton on the other. It's been kept kind of quiet. Uh, I wish they would have advertised maybe some TV spots or radio coverage would have helped get the word out. And you hear people talk about it. How important is this election? I've heard people say it's the most important one ever. And I heard that in 2012 and 2008, 2004 and 2096. We hear that. Some people are worried sick. In fact, in a recent survey, I don't know if you read this this week, 
13% of the people surveyed would rather have an asteroid or a comet hit Earth than vote for Trump or Clinton. <laughs> and there's a margin of error of 4%, so it could be higher than 13%. <laughs> an asteroid hit the Earth. You get lots of pictures and emails and texts and things like this, and I can't share all of them with you, but some people feel that this picture represents the choices you have in November. Have you seen that? We can take that down. If we're not careful, we'll give up. And we will say, there's nothing we can do. Have you heard that or said that? There is nothing we can do. If you got to that point, I want to remind you that there are horrible consequences when we do nothing. It's called preventative maintenance. You change your oil every 5,000 miles. You brush your teeth after meals. You change the batteries of your smoke detectors. You replace your furnace filter. You take the fuzzy green stuff out of the refrigerator and put something else in. You have a physical every few years. The list is endless of things that you do. And if you don't do those things, trouble will come. Doing nothing leads to bigger trouble. Doing nothing will lead to bigger trouble. Over time, Christians have come up with a fancy phrase for that sins of omission. You, you know that. And God frowns at this. A couple of biblical examples you know very well. Matthew 25, maybe the biggest example, the separation of the sheep and the goats. That Jesus will say to those in his left hand, you that are cursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was strange and you did not welcome me. Naked you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. What are these people guilty of doing? Nothing. Doing nothing leads to bigger trouble. And Luke 12, 47, more about sins of omission. And a servant who, does, who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. We're not doing anything. James says this in chapter 4, verse 17. Remember, it's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. If you've been of the mindset that there's nothing that you can do, I want to show you a few things that, well, you already know, but I want to remind you. Second Chronicles 7.14. In the history of Israel, this was the truth, and I believe in the history of any country in this land today is still the truth for Christian people. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their own. I don't care what land it is on the globe or on the planet. If an entire population of any country in this world would do what Second Chronicles 7.14 says, they'd be the most blessed country. 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us what we ought to do. So if you think there's nothing I can do, this is for you. 
Verse 1 says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. Now that's easy, isn't it? It's easy for me to say, well, I can pray for Stuart. I can pray for Yvonne. I can pray for Mickey, and I'll, I'll go to this side. I can pray for Mitch, and I can pray for Jane, and I can pray for JJ, and I can pray for Steve. That's easy when it does that. And then I can think about the prayer list, and I can think, I can pray for those people. Everybody on the list, I can pray for. So I love verse 1 of 1 Timothy 2. I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for everyone. I like that, don't you? And then we get to verse 2. Look at this. First of all, then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving to be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in godliness and dignity. I'm not so crazy about verse 2, are you? That's where the title for this sermon came from. Say what? God's going to meddling now in verse 2, I feel. Does this mean that we're supposed to pray for whoever wins? You like that or not? A little uncomfortable, isn't it? So does that mean Democrats are supposed to pray for Trump? Or Republicans are supposed to pray for Hillary? Absolutely, that's what it means. Am I supposed to pray for Obama and Biden? No. Was I supposed to pray for Bush and Cheney? So, back to 1 Timothy. I'm going to read the three verses together. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life and all godliness and dignity. Verse 3, this is right, and it is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 3 really means I'm watching you, and you better do it. It is right, and it is acceptable in the sight. Of God our Savior. Over the years I've looked at that and I've wondered whatever nation you are in, how could you pray for certain political leaders that have just done damage to this world throughout history? And it finally hit me. I don't believe that God is endorsing government and politicians. God is forced to pray. See the difference? God is telling us to be people of prayer. At the time that Paul writes Timothy, the king who and all who were in high positions would most likely be considered enemies when these words were written. The Bible doesn't tell us to pray for our enemies, does it? Oh, it does. Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I honestly believe the biggest failure in our political system has been Christians not praying the way they ought to. And we say there's nothing we can do. And I'm preaching it me right now. I've actually seen on a church sign on more than one occasion after an election and 
I guess the preacher didn't like who was elected. I've seen people misuse Psalms 109 verse 8 when their candidate is elected. You've seen this, maybe. Let his days be few and let another take his office. You see that? A lot of people love that after an election when their person doesn't make it. That's a horrible abuse of scripture to me. And the refusal to be obedient in prayer. Maybe they ought to use Matthew 544 on their side. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Have you talked more about your country than you've prayed about it? If complaining were prayer, we would be great. All would be well in our world. And if I watch ABC or Fox or NBC or CBS or CNN more than I pray, something's wrong. Andrew Murray said, the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. Charles Spurgeon said, I'd rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. We have to pray. We have to pray for everyone, whether we like it or not. And when we do that, things change. In 1872, the famous American preacher Dwight L. Moody went to Europe, uh, to England in particular, not to preach, but to hear preaching over there. One Sunday morning, he walked into a church to listen, and the preacher insisted that Dwight Moody take over the day, preach that morning and preach that night, and he was hesitant to do it, but he did it. And everything seemed dead. He said to himself, I was a fool to consent to preach. I came here to listen, and I'm preaching. And the morning service wasn't that great, and he felt bad, and the awful thought came to him, I've got to do this again tonight. And the only reason he was going to do it is because he said he would. But when Moody stepped into the pulpit that night and faced the congregation, he felt something was different. He said the powers in his journal, the powers of an unseen world seemed to have fallen on the audience. He concluded his message and offered the invitation, and about 500 people stood up and came to accept Christ. So what happened? Well, after the morning service, there was a woman in the congregation who had an invalid sister at home. And when she went home, she told her sister that the preacher had been there, Mr. Moody from Chicago. What, her sister explained Mr. Moody from Chicago, I read about him some time ago in an American newspaper, and I've been praying for God to send him to London to preach in our church. If I thought he was going to preach this morning, I would have eaten no breakfast, and I would have spent the whole time in prayer. Now, sister, go out of the room, lock the door, and send me to dinner, and no matter who comes, don't let them see me. I'm going to spend the whole afternoon and evening in prayer. And so when Sunday night came around and Dwight Moody preached, and there was a different atmosphere, and 500 people came wanting Jesus to save them. Can you trace it back to the lady locked in the room to pray? What if millions of people in every country prayed for their leaders? What if everybody in the room? How different might things be? There's nothing you can do. You can do more than that. You can pray to the very God who created this world. And don't you think we need to?